This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we begin in verse 18, but actually the second half of verse 18. So 18b is where we're going to begin. As that uh, story continues there, we're going to, I want to read Philippians 1, uh, beginning in verse 18, the second half of that verse through verse 26. If you have your Bible or you can read it on the screen behind me or there's a Bible in the, in the pew rack there, you can use it as well. Let me read this. Yes, and I will rejoice, Paul says, and it goes, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as as your church in this place this morning and throughout our campuses this weekend. Father, as we are looking at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, written, penned almost 2,000 years ago. We know that it is uh, you who have written this through him, and that the words written from this prison cell to this church in this ancient city are as relevant today for us as it was for the group that read it for the very first time. Father, I pray you'll open our ears to hear what it is you would have us hear, and open our eyes to see the truth as you have revealed it. And may we walk out of the room this morning closer to you than when we walked in. So Lord, speak to us and give us wisdom in our response. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Back in 2003 in Utah, a guy named Aaron walked out of his home and went hiking. He went to a a mountain range area doing some of the hiking through there, met up with a couple of backpackers that he met, then they went on their way, and then he was on his own. You probably remember the story because this guy made the rounds on uh, talk shows after his his trip because what happened there in this in this hike is he found himself in a in a circumstance where he was wedged in a in a crevasse between two rocks as a rock fell down on him it crushed his arm and his arm was wedged between those rocks there was no way he was going to move his arm and so he did what uh, only he could do after a number of hours he was videoing himself trying to make a video diary because he figured he would die and then they would find his body eventually and could at least watch the video to see what happened. But then he remembered he had a Leatherman in his pocket. If you remember, know what those are, a multi-tool. His was a little bit worn and uh, had been used numerous times. And, and now right before lunch, let's gross each other out. So he took that Leatherman and decided that he could live with one arm if he removed the other one. So he had to actually amputate his own arm and left it there. We'll just let that image be in your mind for a moment, and now I'm sorry, okay? That's just an amazing story. He ended up getting, uh, getting away. Uh, his cell phone wouldn't work, obviously, and he, he escapes this, this trap, <clears throat> gets out of there, bandages up his arm, meets up with a couple of other hikers and backpackers. They get him to safety, 
And that's probably where you've heard his story because he wrote a book which has a great title, Between a Rock and a Hard Place is his book. And then he made his rounds on all the talk shows and an amazing story of survival. You read that and you go, what would I have done? What could I have done? I don't know if I could have done that. And, uh, And yet he did. And he lived to tell about it and tells that tale throughout the world even now. We have heard stories from, uh, from others. This one just hit the news this week. I don't know if you saw this one as it happened, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday. It was revealed. It was a, a young Indonesian teenager, 19 years old, named Aldi. Aldi works, uh, as a, uh, works on the fishing rafts. And, and I kind of looked this up to see what the deal is, and there's a name for this. But there are these rafts that float out in the, in the water outside off Indonesia, off one of the islands there. And I, and I think it's like 70 miles uh, off the island, or uh, not 70 miles, just a few miles off the island. And so they, they, the owners of these little rafts, they're fishing rafts, and they're, they're anchored there. And uh, this guy, Aldi, 19, was paid with uh, free food and, um, and I think some lodging if he would do this job. And there are a lot of young guys that do this. And so his job was to go out and put the lamps up on the uh, raft. Uh, because at night, apparently, the fish are attracted to the light, and then the fishermen can catch them in, uh, throughout the night and the next morning. So anyway, that's what he did. Uh, I know more about uh, fishing in Indonesia this week than I ever knew or cared to know, but that's what he does. Well, lo and behold, what happened is the raft became un- unhitched and uh, started floating, and there was no oar, no motor, no, no sail. It's just a raft. I mean, this is Gilligan's Island, right? This, uh, you know, well, no, they never built a raft. They stayed on the island. Never mind. Sorry. But it's floating, and for 49 days, this kid's on this raft in, in, the, in the ocean, just floating around. Uh, it said like 10, 10 ships went by. He kept trying to get their attention. I read through the article. There's a little, on this raft, right, it's flat, and there's this little, little uh, hut on it. And so he would start disassembling that and would build a campfire on the boat. Are you, are you picturing this? So you're on a wooden boat, and you have a campfire on the boat. Anyway, so he did. He ended up uh, eating fish every day uh, because there was quite a few fish there. Uh, and then eventually, I think he said he, dra- he, he would drain the salt water through his clothes like numerous times to try to get as much salt as he could out and just to have a little bit to drink. 49 days later, um, a ship sees him, the lights that he has, the fire he has, and they, they see his distress and they come and rescue him. That was in the news this week, how this kid survived after 49 days. I was telling somebody earlier, I said, it sounds like Life of Pi or something, but he's doing this thing, a real story, real life thing. Then there are these other stories. We've talked about our friend Ed Harrell. Remember, Ed was a gentleman, good friends with my dad, who we've had here a couple of times and shared of his story of surviving the sinking of the USS Indianapolis back in World War II um, and how he floated in the ocean there with, with his buddies on those rafts and the sharks and all that story that that takes place and how he survived that. And it's just an amazing story when you start hearing how that, that, that opens up. Here's a little side note on Ed. Some of you already know this, but Ed was a corporal in the Marine Corps back when that ship was sunk, and it was back two or three months ago this year that the Marines showed up at his, uh, some representatives from the Marine Corps showed up at his dad's church, or his son's church, sorry. Ed's like 93 now. So it's his son's church who's a pastor in Tennessee. And what had happened during the, during the war is Ed was a corporal, but he had been promoted to sergeant, but the papers announcing his promotion were on the Indianapolis. So they went under. They didn't have him. But it, they found out. And so Ed Harrell, just because he's a friend, I just thought I'd share this, is now a sergeant. He was promoted this summer. 
And he said, it's really exciting at 93, right? He said, there's no back pay though. There, that's, that's what I asked him. I said, you know, man, if you can go backwards and get a little, little bit of that. But uh, they came, it was a really nice ceremony. They came, the Marines represented him with his uh, sergeant uh, bars there, a, a little pin that he put on his suit and, 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 and represented that. It was really cool. There's another story a little similar to that. This one you may be aware of as well, a survival story, because there's many of these survival stories. You look at these and you start reading, and, the, and you, you can read one. If you get to another one, you're like, man, I just cut, these things just draw you in. Uh, this one also took place in World War II. It was a B-24 on a rescue mission <clears throat> in the Pacific. The plane itself malfunctioned and crashed. Three, the, three men who survived the crash found themselves together on a rubber life raft. After 33 days, tail gunner McNamara died, and the other two, in order to survive, they gave him a burial at sea, and they rolled him over into the ocean. So these two guys are left on this life raft for the remainder, uh, adding up to 47 days, almost as long as the kid from Indonesia was on the, his raft. So there's these two, um, the, these two U.S. military um, uh, men that are on this life raft in the Pacific after 47 days, but lo and behold, thankfully, they were rescued. They look up one day and realize that there is salvation provided for them. The unfortunate thing for them is it was the Japanese that found him. So they pull him off the life raft, right? And they take him immediately to uh, one camp and then eventually to a POW camp. And the story just gets even more horrendous there in the POW camp and the punishment that went through and the severity of that and the pain that they went through. And, and, and you're probably uh, aware of this story. You probably read the story or heard the story or saw the p movie of the story of Louis Zamperini and uh, the Laura Hillenbrand book, Unbroken, that was made by a in, into a movie by Angelina Jolie. Great, I mean, it's a good story, an incredible story. Uh, in case you're unaware, um, he did survive that POW camp. He survived by doing things and, and just persevering in ways that are, make it worthwhile of making a movie. I would say if you saw my parents, my mom loves going to movies. And, uh, and she, I asked her last week, because every week I say, what movie did you go see this week? She goes, well, nothing out I want to see. So we saw their Unbroken's back in the theater, but we already saw that. And I said, oh, no, no, no. This is Unbroken Part 2. You saw Unbroken Part 1. Unbroken that's in the theater now is the rest of the Louis Zamperini story. Because in the book, there's the rest of the story. Because I don't know if you knew this, Louis came back to the States and he was a mess, not just physically from all that he went through in the uh, prison camp, but he was a mess. They didn't call it PTSD back then, but he had it with capital P, capital T, capital S, capital D. He was going through a whole lot of stuff. And his family life, he ends up getting married, and, and yet it's just all falling apart. And uh, this is not a movie review. This is the true story. And then lo and behold, his wife becomes a believer and invites him to come hear this new preacher that's drawing crowds and tents. You may have heard of him. His name's Bill Graham. You might call him Billy, but he's out there preaching. Louis gets saved. His life is transformed through the power of Jesus Christ at that moment. That's the rest of the story of Unbroken that's in the book that now is in a film. Uh, my mom gives it four and a half stars out of five. So, uh, She's a movie reviewer. I'll check next week and let, her, let you know what the next movie is. But um, she thought it was a great movie and definitely worth seeing. And that, but what makes it so powerful is not only the survival of what happened in the war, but the survival of what happened when he got home. Now, why are these stories so intriguing to us? I, I think it's partly because as humans, we look at this and we go, wow, I don't know if I ever had to go through something like that, what I would do. Now, some of you may have been through very similar things. I don't know. There, there are stories in, the, in our congregation. I understand that. And things that, that are, you don't want to think about, but you went through it and you survived it. But there is something about human nature, I guess, that, that, that desires to live. Now, I understand, and I'm not minimizing, that there are people that struggle with that. And there are some that have, 
that have decided they don't want to live. And those, those are stories and, and sadnesses and, and things that we've talked about in the past. And, and yet, by and large, for the most part, it seems like most people have a desire to live. And people will do things in order to continue living. People will, um, they will um, spend money to have the best medical options available. You'll have people that will relocate and move to different areas of the country for certain treatments or parts of the world where they can get treatment they can't, else, can't get elsewhere. We've had people in our church family that have moved to Florida and some have moved to Arizona and other places I know because where they lived up north, the doctor said, because of your COPD or whatever it is you're dealing with, you need to find yourself in another climate that will help you. And people have had to do these kind of things. We will do what's necessary, it seems. We've even had, as, as dramatic as it was to have this story of this man named Aaron amputate his own arm in order to survive this crazy rock, rock uh, uh, climbing issue that took place in Utah, you, uh, you know and I know, and we have family members and friends even here, that when the opportunity, when that's the only option and the doctor says, you know, in order for you to survive for a while longer, an amputation must take place. And sometimes people due to cancers and diseases will have to undergo certain surgeries to have certain body parts removed. We will do whatever it seems necessary, whatever we can do in order to, to do the right thing to have another day. And that's all good. I, I'm not knocking any of that. That's good. All right? That's kind of just who we are. We want to live. But the bigger question is not do you want to live, since the majority of people for the most part and I do understand that there are, there are others, but for the most part, the majority would say yes. I think the bigger question for us today is not do you want to live, but for what are you living? And I worded that just so that our English teachers in the room would not be upset for me saying, what do you want to live for? Because that's what I was going to say, but I, I can't have that preposition hang on the end without getting in trouble from some of you. So for what do you wish to live? But what do you want to live for sounds so much easier. So Living is not the issue, but why are you living? For what is it? There's a key verse here in, in this passage, verse 21. And I think we can put it back on the screen, guys. If we can, put verse 21 back up there. So when you look at this verse, we're reading the English version of this, a translation. Most of us aren't, aren't, aren't versed in the original Greek or Hebrew, so we end up reading these English versions, which I believe through the providence of God are, is still the uh, inerrant word that we can hold true to, okay? So I'm not minimizing that. But there are words in, in the Greek that aren't in the English and it's usually to make the English flow so we can understand it better. But in the original Greek, there's a word in this verse that doesn't exist. And the word that's in this verse that doesn't exist is the word is. And so we're reading it and we go, yeah, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, I get that. That's a key verse. That's an important verse. But in the Greek, it really kind of goes this way. Live, Christ. Die, gain. Live equals Christ. Die equals gain. Now we're like... Well, if we want to live, why, why is Paul talking about gaining by dying? Well, of course, what he's speaking of here, in case you're not familiar with the story, is Paul, and this is one of the dangers of taking a verse out of context and just sticking it on the front of your bulletin without really understanding everything else that goes around this. Paul is in prison. He is in a place that no one wants to make a reservation to be. He is chained up next to a guy. He is in Rome. His plans have been changed. It's not where he intended to be. It's not a fun place. It's not an easy place. And that's where he is. And he doesn't know if he's going to make it out of the prison alive. And what he's writing to this church is saying, he, he's saying this, and it makes it so much more powerful when you understand who and where he's coming from. I am in prison, but you church need to understand. For me, life, Christ. Death, 
in case I don't get out of here, it's all good. Heaven. It's heaven. But if you read the rest of it, you, pretty, you get it pretty clearly. He goes, but it's not my call. It's not my call if I'm going to heaven today or not. That's God's call, so I'm not going to take his job. So make sure you understand that. Okay? But I am fully confident that if God decides that my days on earth are over today, I'm good. Because for me as a follower of Jesus Christ, death is a promotion because I'm with him for eternity. But I also understand that's not my call. The when is not my, my call. So to live, I live for Christ. For me to live, it is Christ. For me to live, it's a focus on Christ. Here's where I am, it's about Christ. And for us as believers today, and I'm speaking to a lot of Christians in the room and to a lot of non-Christians in the room, I understand that. I mean, I understand the, the, that there are non-believers in this room, and I know that there are some who are non-believers who think they are believers. So I get that. We've got, we got a varied crowd in here, just like we do every week, but I'm asking the question, for what are you living? Why is this the case? Can you say, as Paul said, I don't know, I hope you can, I don't know if I can all the time, I want to, but Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but for you and for me, let's just take the word Christ out of there and let's put a blank right there. And now you have to answer the question for your own self and you have to answer this. For me to live is blank. And what's in your blank? Now, I hope it's Christ as I desire it to be for me. But sometimes if we want to just talk reality, I mean, there, there, there might be a, a, a true Story in the room today that the only time you've thought about Christ is when I started saying his name over and over this week. Which really much proves that your Monday through Saturday wasn't about Christ. Now your hour on Sunday may be, but I'm talking about the rest of it. So it may be, to, for me to live is my, well, it's my kids. For me to live is, well, that's my family. For me to live, well, that's my job, my career. For me to live, well, that's where I live. And for me to live, I, I want to be successful. For me to live, it's a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's normal, because that's where everybody is. That's what makes his statement so radical. I'm locked up in prison. I'm going to tell you, you lock me up in prison next to a Roman guard, for me to live is to get out of this prison. That's not what he says, though. So whatever prison you might be living in, whatever struggle you might be facing, whatever we're going through right now, that question has got to go to the forefront of our story today to say, okay, what am I living for? Or for whom am I living? Now here we are in the fall, high school. Let's talk about students because this really impacts teenagers big time. So let's talk about high school seniors. Some of you are here. Some of you have kids that are seniors in high school. Some of you remember high school. Some of you don't. But it's fall. That means we've had Orange Park had half of a homecoming last week until how the half rained out. Ridgeview's got a homecoming coming up this week. Fleming's got a homecoming coming up. I think Clay's homecoming. So you got a homecoming. It's the fall senior year experience. You got homecoming. Then you got prom in the spring. And then you get to walk across the stage somewhere wearing a gown and a, and a cardboard hat. It's a wonderful moment. And families are so excited about it. And you're looking forward to it. But as you get closer to the reality of walking across that stage, question after question after question comes from friend and family member and everyone else to the high school senior. And it's something like this. We're presuming you're going to make it across the stage. The question is, so where are you going to go to school? Where are you going to college? Oh, you're not going to college? That's cool. Where are you going to work? Are you going to the military? What's your plans? And all of a sudden, some 17 or 18-year-old has got to reveal that the rest of their life is already figured out. That's what it feels like. 
Because all the questions keep coming. They just keep coming. You gotta, it's exciting, but those of us that have already walked across that stage, we know now from our perspective that going across that stage and graduating from high school is a big deal, but it's not a finish line. It's barely out of the starting blocks. And life decisions are made that impact them for the remainder of their life. So all these questions come up, and the students and the parents too, it's a pressure upon both, but, or, or whoever, the guardian, the parent, the grandparent, whoever's having to help make these decisions, there are a lot of options. Let's just say college is the option. That's what they're looking for. But even that option is going to be limited by a lot of things. Primarily cost. Secondarily, maybe, Location. Or you can back up and say, if you even get accepted, I mean, you got to go there too, right? So you got acceptance, cost, location. Is there, uh, did you prepay? Are you forward to prepaid? That's going to limit where you go. Are you relying on bright futures or some other scholarships? That's going to limit. You know what? I think sometimes the college choice pick is like, is like uh, that auto trader commercial where the guy says, I'm looking for a car. And there's like 7,000 of them driving. I want a gray one. Now all the gray ones are right here. Okay, I want a two-door. Now it's a two-door. Now I want one that costs $3. There's one car. And that's the one you get. And college is like, I'll go anywhere, but no, but no, but no, but no. And it gets narrowed and narrowed and narrowed, and decisions are having to be made. And sometimes, and I've had students say this to me, let me just go ahead and throw this out and let parents chew on it for a while and be mad. Sometimes the choice of where the student is looking to go to college is based on their parents' favorite team or their allegiance. Let me just say, there is a pressure upon a student to say, well, I want to go to school X, but my parents graduated from school Y, and that's the school we cheer for every year, and school X happens to be the rival of school Y, and even though school X may have a better program for what I feel like I want to do, there's no way on earth I'm going to be able to go there because I no longer can go home and eat anymore if I do. <laughs> and so while it's, a, it's all kind of fun, let me just say, there, is, there are some reality stories in that too. Because sometimes that allegiance to the, as an alumni, supersedes what may be best for the next generation. I'll just throw that one out there. So you think the student's feeling pressure? Sometimes the pressure is logical, sometimes not so much. Sometimes, it, it, here's the thing, maybe, what if it's University X or University Y? Really doesn't matter. They're both going to do a great job, but there's pressure to pick one or to be picked by one. And it's just hard. I mean, you're 17, 18 years old, seriously. Does anybody remember when you were that age? Anybody? That's not that age now, or younger. All right. I, thankfully, I look back and I go, man, I am so blessed to know that when I was between age 17 and 25, I was smart enough to make all the right decisions <laughs> for everything that would impact me the remainder of my life. You realize how many decisions are made in that window of a person's life that impact them for the remainder of their lives? It's heavy. Isn't that encouraging? Let's turn the page. Um, <laughs> so here's another one. Let's talk about workforce, right? Let's talk about workforce. So people get a job. You got a job, right? Whatever age you are, you got a plan. Most people have plans, right? And so you're, maybe you're interviewing for a job or you already have a job. And maybe you have that conversation with a supervisor or a boss or the someone hiring you and they say something like, where do you see yourself in five years? That's a good business question, right? And rarely does someone say, well, you know what? My desire is to stay at this entry-level position for the next 40 years. I don't want to make any more money. In fact, if it could go just part-time and I could wonder if I even have a job every week, that'd be great. No, no one says that. People say, well, in five years, I hope to kind of either, you know, move my way up, maybe get into management, maybe become a self-employed individual, maybe start, you know, the, 
just never say, in five years, I think I want your job. Never say that. It doesn't work out too well. Unless they're looking to leave, and then you can take their... I mean, it's just this weird concept. But you're asked, what do you, where do you see yourself in five years? And so you better have a plan. It doesn't end with the workforce. It doesn't end with school. Let's talk about relationally. Let's talk about maybe a young person that say, hey, here's the question. You're, you're, you're a young person. You're in school. You're, and, and the question is, hey, when are you going to get married? And the first answer is, I don't know, probably after I date somebody. I don't know. Um, but there's an easy question. When are you going to hurry up and get married? It's usually contingent on finding someone else that will say the same thing to you. And we get that. That's, not a, that's just reality. So it's not always in your control. But let's say you do get married. Now you're a young couple and you're married and everybody went to the wedding. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. I'll give you eight months before the next question is thrown at you. When are you going to have kids? My grandbabies. There's the question. And then if you have kids or you find out you're expecting, here's the next question. You want a boy or a girl? And it really doesn't matter what you want at that point. It's already done. But you got questions. Now, of course, you do realize we're in the designer baby age where people can pick their gender before they're ever born. Or you can just clone yourself. I don't know how that works either. We're in a different world than what we, most of us grew up in. But there are more and more questions being asked and more and more pressure being placed and more and more things. So life is full of questions and it can be overwhelming because the risk of, oh my goodness, what if I make the wrong choice? And yet, I don't know if you knew this, and maybe this is a revelation. There are sometimes things that happen in life that you just did not plan for. There are things that happen that you did not expect. There are things that take you by surprise you didn't see coming. Some of you here today just looking around the room and me being a human being just like you, I dare say there's anyone in the room that has not lived an experience that was not on their plan. I mean, you, no one at 17 or 18 planned it all out and you've done everything exactly as it's been planned. There have been other things that have infiltrated your story that you did not see coming and it changed some plans. Let's just talk about Paul on a mission trip. You ever been on a mission trip? If you ever go on a mission trip with a church, usually you have to have an itinerary. And if you are taking teenagers on a mission trip, the parents need the itinerary. You have to provide that. Because we want to know when you're leaving and when you're coming back and what you're doing while you're gone, especially if we're funding it. Paul's on a mission trip. And on his mission trip, his itinerary was hijacked in Rome. Paul's in prison and he's going, I ain't got time for this, but they didn't care. Paul's saying, I've got places to preach, but they didn't care. I've got Bible studies to lead, but they didn't care. I've got to get back to Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and visit our church. They didn't care. Where's Paul? In prison. Why? Because his story, his good plan, his way it's going to be is now interrupted, and he is in prison in Rome. And he's got a choice to make. I can sit here in my circumstances I did not like and complain about my circumstances I do not like and let my circumstances that are not fun and that are painful, that are hurtful, define me, or I can, Paul the Apostle, practice what I preach. Paul had a lot of difficult stories in his life. And let me just say, if you're looking for the easy Christian journey where everything walks, works out and, 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 you, and you like a little Norman Vincent Peale scattered with some Joel Osteen because everything feels good when you got that kind of Jesus, let me just declare that neither of those are worth reading or listening to. And both of those offer a false gospel that's going to leave you lacking. Okay? So, Paul had to make a choice. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in his choice, here's what he chose. I'll tell you what he didn't choose. He didn't choose to be in prison. 
did choose this. He chose to rejoice in Christ. Now that sounds so superficial when life is going difficultly. Is that a word? Or it's very hard. As we have shared over the past few weeks, joy is a choice. Joy is not dependent on circumstances or on other people behaving the way we want them to. Did you know that? I don't know if you knew this, this might be new news to you, but most people on the planet don't care what you think regarding how they behave. Therefore, they are not living their lives to ensure you're happy. Did you know that? If you don't, go drive on the interstate. You'll discover how many people don't care about you. Unless you're in their way, they'll care about you. Getting out of their way. Rejoice in Christ. Joy is a peace that comes when trust in Christ occurs. Life, here's, this is encouraging, life is not easy and it's never going to be. Life is not safe and it's not supposed to be. Oh, I've heard the preachers say the safest place to be is in the center of God's will and eventually when heaven comes, it certainly is true. But in the meantime, while you're living on a planet that is opposed to God and His teachings, how can it be the safest and most fun place to be in the center of God's will knowing that everybody's shooting arrows at you? That's what the enemy does. It's going to be worth it and it's the right place to be, but I'm just going to warn you, it's not going to be easy. And you're going to wonder, why is everybody taking pot shots at me? Because you're in the center of God's will. Hang tight, it's worth it. Paul was in the very center of God's will. Where did it happen to be? In a prison in Rome at the time. Sometimes you're going to face, well you will, you'll face a life full of temptations. You'll face difficulties and hard circumstances. And you're going to have to deal with frustrating people. And sometimes the most frustrating people you have to deal with are the ones staring back from the mirror when you look at it. That one frustrating person. Nevertheless, if we choose, we can see a better perspective. Sometimes God will bring someone along to help us see things more clearly. Be aware of that. Sometimes He will. He'll definitely do it through His Word. I read this and I think about another biblical hero of the faith named Job. Everybody wants the faith of Job. Nobody wants the story of Job. He said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Regardless of his circumstances, he kept his faith in the Lord. Even in the difficulty when others said, Just curse God and die. He said no. Secondly, Paul relied on Christ. He had to, he had to rely on Christ. You know what he discovered? It wasn't the Roman government that was going to get him out. Now I will tell you this. This would make a really cool movie, but I don't believe this ever happened. If we see Paul in prison, can you imagine the story when all the men in Philippi and Corinth get together and they devise a secret night raid on the prison where they break in and rescue Paul out of it? That'd be awesome. Didn't happen, but it'd really be cool. Paul stays in prison. You know who Paul realizes is going to be his rescue from prison? Jesus Christ. I was at uh, Lakeside Junior High Tuesday, uh, Thursday morning at our FCA. I asked this question of our students. I said, hey, why did Jesus come? And I got church kids and non-church kids, Christian kids, non-Christian kids, and the answer from one of the Christian church kids was what you would expect. He came to die on the cross. I said, well, that's, that's true. And then I asked the follow-up, and I said, but based on Jesus' own words when he was asked, what did Jesus say was the reason he came? And then they all stared at me, and they refused to answer any other questions because now they think every question's a trick question. But it is. In Luke 4, Jesus answered that question. See, Jesus was, um, it's not wrong to say he, to die on, die on the cross for our sins. That's ultimately what he did. But there's so much more than that that leads up to that. 
Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He's away from Nazareth. He's 30 years old. He goes back home to Nazareth. When entering into the city, he's on a, it's a Saturday. He goes to the synagogue where all of his Jewish friends that he grew up with are worshiping and the leaders of the city. So he goes in and he opens the door and they go, oh, Jesus, we're so glad you're here. And they hand him a scroll. And they said, why don't you do the scripture reading today? And Jesus is given a scroll. He opens up to the book of Isaiah, uh, the, rolls it down to Isaiah's prophecy, okay? And he starts reading out of, the, out of Isaiah's prophecy from the Old Testament. Testament. He gets to a certain point, and this is what he says. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty <clears throat> to the captives, or your Bible might say freedom for the prisoners, <clears throat> and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The scripture continues, said he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, the attendant took it, and here's the deal. <clears throat> First century Jewish people in the synagogues have read Isaiah. They know the prophetic passage, messianic passage. It's been read over and over. They've got it. You church people have been to church long enough that Luke 4 should not be a shock. You've heard it. You've read it. That ought to be a better answer than he came to die on the cross because you've got it. Because when Jesus rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, they were all like, thank you, Jesus, little Jesus. And then they said, and what are you going to teach us from that? Because, you know, that's kind of how you do it. You read it and you teach. And then Jesus looked at them and said, Hey, behold, today this scripture has been fulfilled and you're hearing. And they all went, Oh no. And they tried to kill him and ran him out of the town. We're all cool until you claim to be the Messiah. But Jesus claimed to be the Messiah because that's who he is. And Jesus in his inaugural address right there declared why he came. I have come, just as Isaiah said, to preach the good news, to give sight to blind people, to set free captives, to set free or provide freedom for the oppressed. That's why I've come. And we read that and we go, well, aren't there still people in prison? Yeah. Well, aren't there still people being oppressed? Yeah. Aren't there still people that do not have eyesight? Yeah. But in this case, Jesus came to do all these things and he did fulfill this because here's what he did. For those who have been freed from the prison of sin by receiving him, they have been rescued, whether the bars are still there or not. For those who are blind, which is everybody, everybody on the earth, blind to the truth. You know, in case you didn't know this, there's no such thing as your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth and their truth. There's truth. But we are blinded to that. We have circumstantial truth. We have perceptions of truth. Jesus said, I have come to give sight to the blind so that people will really see and hear the truth. Jesus came to set free the prisoners. You may not be in a physical prison like Paul, but as a human being, our nature is to be entrapped in a prison of sin that keeps us from being the men and women that God has called us to be. And Christ alone is the one that rescues us and gives us freedom. Lastly, Paul said, I've come, I've chosen to remain in Christ. This is not a statement about salvation. This is not about losing one's salvation. This is about obedience. Let me just throw this one out and then we'll be done. Sometimes well-meaning Christians make plans and then ask God, to bless their plans. I don't know if you knew that happened. I knew a guy once that, well, it's me, that used to do that. That does that. That's our nature. Well-meaning Christians will make plans and ask God to bless them. This is true for parents when they try to figure out where they want to send their kid to public, private, or homeschool. This is true for students trying to figure out where they're going to go to work, or school, or work, or military, or whatever. This is true for adults regarding their own jobs. 
Do I keep this job or do I move to this state and work here? Do I keep this job or go here? This one offers good insurance and it pays well and this, that, and the other. And I want to live in this neighborhood because I'm going to choose to live in this neighborhood because it's safer and it's better for my kids and better for my family. All these things are what all of us do. People even do this with churches. I'm going to leave this church and go to that church. I want to go to that church and go to this church. And choices are made and God's left out of the equation by good Christian people. That's just a reality. Well, I know God wants me to do this. Well, how do you know that? Some do because they prayed through it. But the default, I believe, is that we make really good decisions and then hope God will bless them. Rather than say, God, what do you want me to do? And then we go, well, how do you know? I can't hear God. And I say, well, that's your problem. You can't hear God. You hear everybody else. See, before you make a decision, even if it seems like a good one, consider this. For me to live is blank. And whatever's in that blank will determine your decision-making process. For me to live is a good job, well, then you're going to move wherever the money is. And you're going to define it as, well, God's everywhere. For me to live is my family, then you're going to do whatever it need, you need to do to bulldoze all the difficulties your children could ever face so that they have it really, really super easy and have the right school and the right... And that's good because you love your kids, and you do. For me to live is... What? If it's anything but Christ, then that's what will drive you. And if it's anything but Christ, then that's the voice you'll hear. And I, I fear... I feel because I'm this guy. I've done this. I've made decisions and asked God to bless them. And then sometimes I ask God to forgive me and rescue me from my bad ones. That seemed really good at the time. You say, well, how do you hear the voice of God? Well, I've never heard it audibly. But I've read the scriptures. And it's my def- And if you do hear the voice of God audibly, God bless you. But whatever he tells you, better match what he's already told you or you're hearing some weird voice that ain't God and it just feels good but it's not God for me to live is Christ if it is Christ you will hear his voice well if it is not you will do what many have done and continue to do you will make good decisions that may or may not be God decisions and you will not experience the joy that is the foundation of the letter of Philippians and I hope you do feel that. And sometimes the God decisions will be the most illogical thing you can see. But over time, you'll recognize them for what they are. Pray with me if you will.